I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, the word entrepreneur conjures up images of Elon Musk characters. Young, slick, tech-savvy Silicon Valley types in a hurry to make millions. Just listen to this song from Chris Record, who makes his money singing about being an entrepreneur. Well, scratch that idea, because many of our most successful entrepreneurs are a bit wrinkled, pretty thrifty, and money and fame are not always their motivation. What's more, while ageism is alive and well when it comes to doing business, enterprises run by older people are less likely to fail, like these ones. A woman who decided to write self-help books for women, a man who wanted to do work on green energy because he thought he'd like his grandchildren to know that he'd done something practical. Hmm. The pandemic has pushed more people into their own business. Others just want to stop working for the man or woman. But older people are mainly seen as a problem to be solved or a resource for younger go-getters. And what's missing for them is a lack of support. How can we create the conditions that will enable social entrepreneurs to thrive? And right now, it's ad hoc. There's not support specifically geared towards older people. Today, we'll meet a woman in her 50s who gave up the high-paid corporate life to solve the housing crisis in her hapū in Hokianga. But first, Dr Judith Davey interviewed older business owners for a Massey University study called Maximising Workforce Participation for Older New Zealanders. How do you define a senior entrepreneur? Yes, well, that is a question. Both words need definition. Mm. Um, The general way in which this thing is dealt with in the international literature and so on is that an older worker is 50-plus. And entrepreneur is a difficult word because most people, when they use it or hear of it, think of a young um, go-getter and very profit-oriented. We're just talking about people who have started their own businesses. And when we put a question in a survey to try and recruit people who had done this, we didn't actually use the word entrepreneur because we thought it might be a bit off-putting. So we just said, have you started a business, a new business, since the age of 50? What kind of things are people getting into later on in life? Well, a huge variety of things. One of my examples was a woman who was in a a high-rate management job And quite by chance, she met another woman who was making food products at home and trying to sell them in markets. And they got together, and with a combination of her business experience and the woman's practical experience of making good products, they set up a business together. So that was an opportunity that just arose. Another person was approached by investors who said, look, you're obviously doing, producing a good product. If you start a, a business up, we will fund you. The, what we call making a difference is another one. People who think that they have got the capacity that they would like to do something that would benefit other people. And the kind of examples we've got there was a man who was working on ways in which small communities could communicate after a disaster. 
so that instead of it being a kind of national thing, each community would have a, a, a system whereby they could communicate. And then um, we had people who were change-oriented. They just wanted to do something different. There were also the people who just did it out of necessity. They found themselves in a situation where they didn't have uh, a job. But they boil it down in the literature to whether they're a push or a pull. You know, a push where you're made redundant and you have to think of something else, and a pull where those sort of opportunities I've mentioned arise. But we think push and pull is too simplistic. There are all these other things that come in, and all their life experience comes in, the skills they've developed over their life, the contacts that they've developed, and very often by their midlife, they may have access to some funding if they need it to get started. Mm, well, that's so what I was it, wondering about because what happens if they do need funding and they go to the bank? Because, you know, banks these days seem to be very reluctant to give loans if you're not, if you haven't got a job. Very often the people we interviewed were actually self-funding. Mm. They had their savings and they ran a very lean kind of business. One or two of them had borrowed money, and of course there's this woman where the investors approach her, she had funding there, and in fact they had paid it all back pretty well after five years, they'd done very well. You're talking about quite a few women, um, is it more women than men who tend to start up their own operations at this No, old... no, no, plenty of men, plenty okay. of men, there was one man who again who... Um, decided he wanted to pick up his interest in painting art mm. and uh, he's now a successful artist now and somebody just, else um, sorry. set up their own recording studio and is producing music for various clients just going back to that thing of their age whether it's a hindrance or a help what about when they go out into the business environment I don't think we've had any much of, of, of ageism coming into it. And and not really sexism either. That's probably why I keep mentioning the women. <laughs> well, that's well, another good of thing. my own experience too. <laughs> it's beneficial, not just um, to the individual, but it is, of course. It's a way of keeping up contact. It's a way of keeping up contribution. It's a way of using their human capital that mm. they've developed through their life. And, of course... Um, Older people staying in, in paid work is beneficial to the country economically. Absolutely. And is being encouraged. What about the risks, though? Well, it's because, as I said before, most of them actually do not need an awful lot of capital to get started. One woman said to me, well, you know, I go to conferences and I pick up notebooks and pens. <laughs> I don't have to buy any, you know, which is a, a small example. Um, and they have used their own businesses. This woman who was writing self-help books for women said, well, look, I've, I've got a second um, book on the way, but I won't be able to publish it till I've recovered the, um, the money from my first book. So she was just going to wait mm. until she had the money coming back in, and then she'd go on and do the second book. The man with the recording studio said, well, I've got all my equipment second-hand, 
um, I go out there and, and look around or I advertise and I get second-hand equipment and it doesn't cost me all that much. So they're really being very, um, you know, very thrifty in the way they're working and tend not to build up debt or any of that kind of thing. But we have found that, that they tend not to use a lot of outside help. The main outside help that they use is to have an accountant. Not many of them had used business advice. And in fact, after we'd done the interview program, um, we went out and did a series of workshops around the country, we did seven in, in all, where we talked to local economic development groups, we talked to business mentors, and um, we're hoping we will eventually be able to make some recommendations as to what support is needed by people in this situation and how it can be achieved because a lot of the people we interviewed were a bit suspicious of business mentors. You know, they, they felt, you know, what could they tell us that we don't know already, <laughs> <laughs> which might be a different situation to younger people in this uh, wanting to start businesses. It's a fantastic time to be alive, Sharon. You know, it's like, what can you leave behind at this point of time in your life? Lynette Fararo is Ngāpuhi, living in Hokianga, a leader at her marae and in her hapū. She started a collective, tentatively called Hokianga Hapū Housing, to build 200 houses. Lynette, who is in her 50s, knows what it's like to live in substandard housing. She's recently upgraded from a bus to a small cabin. She gave up a chance to do high-paid work for a government agency to put her skills into pushing for a better deal for her people. The vision is um, off-grid housing solutions, waterless toilets, even on a, on a block of property, multiple dwellings, very healthy families work, you know, being able to live together and that's their bubble on their papakainga, electric vehicles, believe it or not, um, electric four-wheel drive vehicles, even better. That just means that they can, it's got a legal car that can go into town. You know, there's none of the anxiety of living like how we're living now. Um, there's none of this uh, afraid to go out to even the four square down the road, you know, and hide because mm. you, you know how you're living. So we have a chronic housing condition up here in Hokianga, multiple families living in very poor housing from the extreme of living in buses, um, cars, trucks, tents and, and, and sheds, cow sheds because it's got a really firm foundation and cabin. It's not a matter of walking into the bank and, and asking for a loan uh, to build a house on your block of mm. land. The amount of conversations that you have to have with your whānau or the owners of that block of land, 99% of them do not live here. Um, no, maybe 80 to 90% of them don't really want to engage in it, but they're on this block of land. And that's a real barrier to this level of um, public housing. So, Lynette, I'm just reading your background is in strategic consulting. Why have you started up this collective? It's a natural progression. I've been involved in the beleaguered Ngāpuhi hearings and settlement process and um, didn't just stop there. We had the housing inquiry. We have a whole lot of kaupapa inquiries that Māori are involved in right now as well. The alternatives were to go and leave my roles here 
and shift into uh, an urban environment in Auckland or to Wellington, which would put our family at a disadvantage. So that risk of not healing family relationships with the land, that was a huge risk. Huge crisis was our ageing population. And and so um, understanding what some of our real needs were here around housing, um, I live and you know lived in a bus uh, and now have progressed to having uh, a six by four cabin uh, from a three bed four bedroom home into that in a bus for six years. You're dealing with a regional national policy that's being implemented and being able to disrupt that or put a, a voice in that, that space and that's sitting at the table to have a voice is the first thing. Yeah. So Hukianga housing is a it's an opportunity for us to work collectively together now. You had a choice between a, maybe a corporate career in the big cities yeah. or living and working on your land w- surrounded by your whanau and working on ways of improving their lives through better housing. Yeah, yeah. And to be honest, last year, right before we got the tsunami um, warning up here in Taitokero, I was headhunted for a role down in, in Wellington. And then getting hit with the tsunami right that very day that I was having my job interview and the realisation kicked in. What, what is exactly am I leaving? How exposed am I leaving not just my own family who were prepared for me to take on that contract for a couple of years, Mm. but also everybody else who lived here? There's definitely an age response. I think, you know, out of that wisdom, you gather that you have to make a very clear decision for financial gain versus what is socially and culturally correct for you to make. So by being there, you obviously know how to deal with different groups. You know how to make make things happen, really. Yeah. You know, it's like a, a referral system, basically. It's the go-to, go online, go to our website online, click on that and make that referral system. So the frustration is real for families who are, are in the space. One, we don't even get um, coverage, and I'm just... I've got my phone sitting up there because I'm hooked and hotspotting to my phone. Mm. Um, otherwise, this is a black zone, and Gosh. Zoom is holding up fa- fantastically. So I'm, I'm thankful. <laughs> it's, it's loud and clear, isn't it, Lynette? So what would you say your goal is here with with this collective? The hope and dream really is is around housing on Papakainga Whenua, on Multiplio Māori land and their safe, secure homes, not the cabins. So also having off-grid power solutions because most multiple Māori blocks of land, Māori already have uh, deficiency and gap in income and it costs nearly 75000 just to do a 20-metre ditch from a property, on a property to a, a power pole. 
and um, that $75,000 could definitely pay for a microgrid solution that could actually provide power for not just one home, but a whole lot of homes. But what if that was a full-blown house with all of those um, access to power and access to water and a warm house where you don't have to walk outside to the um, long drop during the winter times? Mm-hmm. Cooking in a kitchen is probably, you know, one of the um, biggest things I, I have missed over the last few years is is cooking in the kitchen and just the simple thing of putting toast into a toaster and having toast for breakfast, you know. Sharing a meal with my children, you cannot do that. Where there's indoor-outdoor flow, you know, it's pretty much outdoors. You have to stay warm. You lock yourselves off into your little cubby holes so you can't share a meal. The impression I get is if you weren't there, this just wouldn't happen. Yeah, I'm afraid uh, to say you're dead right. You know, um, building these amazing relationships also with Te Rorua. So they're a, a post-treaty settlement entity that have got their strategy in housing. They're really focused on that. And working alongside them as well as Te Rarua, who, again, a post-treaty settlement, having to go and scale deep with Fano at the grassroots level is a completely different situation. It's a fantastic time to be alive, Sharon, you know. It's like, what can you leave behind at this point in time in your life? And I've been talk, um, mentoring a, a one of my young nieces in this space. We Will can, you have any can... houses built by next year, do you think, end of next year? I, You know, hand on heart, I'm going to say yes, Sharon. You know, out of the 201, if we can make that drop back down, you know, at least have 40 have 40 homes Mm. or 40 um, housing solutions in that space Mm. and it's going to be a mixture of things because multiply own Māori land is going to is a lot of conversations the process for funding in that space is also a maze to work through I want to see a hokianga housing strategy in six months time including emergency housing transitional housing marae as well as acquisition and procurement inside there one of the organisations supporting Lynette Farado is Arkina Foundation and Purcell is Director of Capability Building. Arkina is all about creating more businesses that make a positive difference to people's lives in Aotearoa. We focus a lot on working with community enterprises, whānau businesses, people who want to really make a change in the world through the kind of mahi they're involved in doing. So do you have a lot of older people? I hate saying older people because it's like when they talk about Mm. senior entrepreneurs, it's people over 50, which isn't old, is it? Absolutely. So um, I'm really interested in this particular area. I'm 57. And so I've been really kind of looking into what a senior entrepreneurship look like for the last couple of years. And some of my desktop research told me that Often senior entrepreneurship is focused on older people as a problem or a problem to be solved, you know, for this aging population. And some of the other um, things that came up were also about older people being like a resource, you know, as mentors Mm. to support um, social enterprise. And so I began to look in our practice, where are we actually encountering older entrepreneurs? And what transpired is that most of the older entrepreneurs we were connecting with were coming from Māori and Pacific communities. And the other thing that was coming across is that most of those people 
where um, engaging in, in business that was creating positive impact, but that had an impact that was across generations as well. So final businesses that had two or growing into three generations involved, but that often the visionary, the person who was really leading out with the um, idea to make a difference through their, their business was um, the older person uh, in, in the mix. And what kind of businesses are you talking about? One of the first organisations I encountered was in South Auckland, and that was a fundraising uh, activity that the family were engaged in called Underground Hangi. And so that business shifted from you know several times a year doing fundraisers to being a business that was really an opportunity for the family to look towards actually moving north out of Auckland and moving back to, to land up in the far north. And what sort of work did you do with that particular business? Part of um, our story was about helping them make the right connections and also some of that thinking and the mindset stuff around how it was possible to create a business from where they were doing a fundraiser, that they could take it into a business space, so setting up a business structure. Being older... Does it have its benefits, but also the downsides as well? You know, there's no doubt that ageism is alive and well. I think one of the good news pieces is that older entrepreneurs tend to be more successful and there are less of them that fail. I mean, I think one of the things that there is here is is an amazing opportunity to look at, rather than ageing as a a problem, uh, is, you know, high businesses can be supportive of people you know transitioning if they're in in full-time work is is like the opportunities that can be created to enable people to explore business to create impact we've got a lot of startup kind of support that's centered around young people and you know there's very very good reasons for that but what about the opportunities that can actually support older people into this space because i i think older people do have so so much to bring you know one of the things that really drives our work at Akina is how can we create the conditions that will enable social entrepreneurs to thrive and right now it's ad hoc there's not support specifically geared towards older people so I'm building off what we're seeing in practice which is some of those intergenerational kind of models of developing business are thriving are there ways that that kind of model could be shared more widely that's it for today i'm sharon brett kelly the detail is public interest journalism funded by nz on air and is a joint newsroom rnz production you can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform alexia russell produced this episode jeremy ansel engineered it thanks to anne purcell Lynette Farrero and Judith Davey. Mā te wā.